Well, welcome back this week to North Main Street Church of God's uh, morning worship service. Glad you joined us for worship this morning and getting ready for the message. Uh, we're going to continue our series on uh, for the joy that was set before him, talking about Jesus and the cross. Um, I hope you had a good Easter weekend last weekend, and I hope this week started out and went smoothly. Uh, and, and I hope that um, you're able to get over this hump. I don't know if you are feeling the same way I am, but this is getting old. Not recording videos, but not seeing you guys face to face. I'd rather be right there with you or you be right here with me. Uh, but until then, we continue doing what we're doing in this venue um, through video and online recording. So I'm glad you joined me again today. Um, just a few little nuts and bolts. Uh, we'd normally do an offering again, like I say, every week. Uh, and since we can't collect an offering here at the church, there are several ways you can give to support the ministries in North Main Street Church of God. Uh, and by the way, let me, let me encourage you uh, and, and give you some praise. Thank you so much, those of you who are giving. Uh, we are not falling too far behind in our, in our budgetary needs at this point, so things are going really well. And because of your giving, we've been able to bless people in the community uh, with an apportion, uh, apportionment of your tithes and offerings uh, through providing face masks that uh, uh, many of you even... Uh, in hearing my voice have been putting together uh, and dropping off at the church so we can deliver them to nursing homes and hospice care facilities and other medical professionals. So thank you for, for financially supporting us buying the fabric, the elastic, and all the other materials necessary. And thank you for, for being willing to help sew and put these together if you've been doing that. We've also uh, been providing uh, some meals for uh, the, the nurses, the doctors, and the medical professionals up at Butler, Butler Hospital, and uh, they've been blessed by that. They've been blessed by your giving, uh, and so thank you for doing that. Um, we are also working with other uh, places in the community to try to continue to bless in whatever ways we can during this time of quarantine. So uh, the monies you give to North Main Street Church of God, an apportionment of that, like I said, do go to help support our community partners, our global partners who are in Uganda, Haiti, Paraguay, uh, India. They're all experiencing these same things as well. And we're trying to keep in touch with them and make sure that they're doing well and seeing if they have needs that we can maybe help them with. So if you would consider giving to North Main Street Church of God and its ongoing ministries, please do so. And here's some ways you could do that. Uh, go to www.northmaincog.org. And in the top right-hand corner of the webpage, our homepage, you'll see a Give tab. It just says G-I-V, Give. If you click on that, it'll walk you through the processes on how to give online directly to North Main Street Church of God. If, uh, if you don't want to do that and you'd rather do a text to give, you'll notice at the bottom of your screen while I'm talking, it gives you the instructions on how to do text to give. There's a number there and how, what you should put in the memo blank uh, to give. As well, if you want to do the old-fashioned way, 
Uh, we do have people checking the mail every day and manning the phones every day, even though we're, we're not opening up the offices to the public or opening up the church to the public quite yet. So if you wanna, if you wanna mail your, your tithe or your check to us, that's perfectly fine as well. Our address is 1201 North Main Street, Extension, Butler, Pennsylvania, 16001. All right, now with that out of the way, let me start uh, with a word of prayer and our message. Father, thank you for the men and women who are joining us this morning, the children that may be joining us, the teenagers, the young adults. I pray that you would bless them in their homes or wherever they're listening to this right now. I pray, God, that you would bring a speedy recovery to those that are affected by the coronavirus and that, Father, you would reign supreme and victorious and that, God, you would manifest yourself in a way to bring healing on our land. We ask that you'd forgive us of our sins. We repent of any wrongdoing as a nation and we pray, God, that you would, uh, you would heal our land yet again. Again, we love you, thank you, and praise you for it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this sermon is entitled Joy in Unity, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 17 this week. If you remember last week for Easter service, we looked at John chapter 16, the last part of that, where Jesus is encouraging his disciples with, with words that they don't quite understand. He's trying to encourage them that they're going to experience some really bad stuff. They're going to go through some suffering and trials and that they will ultimately betray him in the long run. But to take heart and do not worry about that because he's overcome the world. That they will go from mourning <clears throat> and grieving to this uh, elation and joy like overnight. In one instance, they'll be feeling this way. In the next instance, they're going to be feeling this way. And so he's trying to encourage them with that. Well, just after they, they went through the Passover meal and Jesus is encouraging them with these words in an upper room in Jerusalem, um, he he has a prayer over them. He has a prayer between him and the Father in heaven, and he encourages not only his hearers with this prayer, but, um, but he's, he's praying for something specific. He's praying for unity. So as I was preparing for this message this morning, the question that came to mind is, what is the real definition of unity? Well, you can look it up in the dictionary. Here's just common English dictionary words for unity. It is a noun, and it means the state of being one. Pretty simple. Or it, it means oneness. Uh, it can be a whole or a totality. It's combining all the parts into one. So when we think of unity, we think of things that are complete, that are held together uh, as, as a unit of one. Uh, Vesta Kelly, who is, uh, who is an old author, dead and buried and gone now, uh, said that snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things. Uh, but just look at what they can do when they stick together. The unity of snowflakes together can wreak havoc on our weather, on our, on our con road conditions, and those kind of things. Uh, they can cause avalanches, but one snowflake in and of itself uh, is, is though it's very unique, it's very fragile, but together it causes causes uh, a lot of power and a lot of uh, difficulty for many of us who live in the northern regions of the United States. One of the greatest challenges to the world, and I'm going to say to the church as well, is this idea of unity. 
Why is it so hard to be unified? Now, in the world, Jesus said, remember last week in John chapter 16, in the world you will have troubles and trials of many kind, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We expect there to be disunity in the world, but, but within the church, why is there disunity or a lack of unity within the church? And here's what I believe the answer to that is. I think it's simple. I think it's profound. Uh, and, and I don't want to say it's all the devil's fault, but let's be honest. We call him Satan, the devil, the enemy. There is an enemy who prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And, and this enemy, evil, the embodiment of evil, Satan, the devil, is the cause and the reason for disunity. Do you think he wants the church to be unified? Of course not. He, he doesn't want that at all. Uh, remember John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus' very words, the enemy or the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. That's what he knows best. But Jesus, what did he come to do? He came to bring us life abundantly. So whatever you want to call it, in the church, we call him Satan, the devil, the enemy. He is the one that will stop at nothing in order to subtly or blatantly wreak havoc on humanity for the purpose of drawing people away from God and causing disunity within the body of Christ. So we come today to this, to this, this sermon, this message in John chapter 17, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Testament this morning. But John chapter 17, we're going to look at uh, 26 verses, starting with verse 1. So after saying all of these things that Jesus had said in John chapter 16, warning them that they're all like sheep, going to scatter, but take heart, I've overcome the world, all of that, he goes into this prayer. And after he does this, he looks up to heaven in verse 1 and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For I have given him authority over everyone. Or excuse me, you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one that you've given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to the earth. I brought glory to you here on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. The echo of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, comes out in the very words of Christ in this passage. What does John, chapter 1, verse 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Now, Jesus is reflecting on that in verse 5. Now, Father, bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. Verse 6, <clears throat> I have revealed you to the ones that you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message that you gave me. They accepted it and know that I come from you. And they believe that you sent me. Verse 9. My prayer is not for the world, but for those that you've given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. 
Now I'm departing from the world, and they are staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. So, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name that you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction, speaking of Judas Iscariot, as the scriptures had foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your word. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as, I've, just as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. Verse 20. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you and me if we believe in Jesus. He's praying for us too. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, that you love them as much as you love me. Those are encouraging words this morning. In verse 24, he goes on to say, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory that you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Again, referencing John's statement in John chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 25, and I close this section of scripture with this. Oh, righteous father, he, write, or he says, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know that you sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and then I will be in them. What's the key point from all of this today? It sounds like a lot of word play, but I want to break it down for us to really figure out what is Jesus talking about and saying about unity? Well, here's the key point this morning, and it's this. Unity with God through Jesus and unity within the body of Christ, the church, is the catalyst for true joy. Why is Jesus saying these things? Why is he talking about uh, to the Father uh, keeping the disciples unified and connected? Why is he praying this prayer? Because his desire is that we, as the body of Christ, would be so unified together that we wouldn't fall apart through divisive circumstances or situations, that we would truly know the truth that can set us free, that we would be focused on, on the power and the glory and the might of Almighty God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, the foundation of our unity. So one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses within the church is division. It's division. It's confusion, yes. He's the author of confusion. 
But one of the greatest tools that the enemy uses against the church and within the church to keep us focused on the problems rather than the solution to the problem, who is Jesus Christ, is to divide us on so many different issues. If Satan can, and I say he often does, divide the church, he can hold sway over the direction of people's hearts, and that's the problem. So what can we learn from this passage of Scripture? What can we take away from this passage of Scripture with regard to Jesus praying to the Father about his, his people, his disciples, staying unified, staying as a group of one together? The first thing is this. We can see that there's unity between God the Father and God the Son, who is Jesus. So between the Father and Jesus, there's this unity. He says this over and over, as I am in you and you are in me, as we are one together. He, he references this same pattern in this same phrase over and over through these 26 verses. He's praying that his disciples would be unified together just as he and the Father are one, just as they are unified together. The perfect model for unity uh, before anything else ever existed was the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus existed as a part of the Godhead with the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are three persons in one substance or one essence. They are not three derivations of each other. They are not three uh, separate gods, as some would like to assume. Uh, and they are not a stair-step process of, you know, God the Father's the highest, and then there's the Son, and then there's the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal persons in one essence. That is the Trinity. That is the unity that should be modeled within the church. They are coexistent together as one. That's why we are a monotheistic tradition or a one-God tradition in Christianity. We, we believe that there is one God, but he is eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is a hard thing to really talk about doctrinally because it is mind-boggling. Uh, the infinite is very oftentimes uh, difficult to talk about with finite human reasoning. And so we, we really struggle with human concepts and language and how to describe Trinity, but the Trinity is basically this unity of oneness. This is why Jesus is using this language of as I am in you and you are in me, the two of us being one. And I want to give you some scripture this morning where, where Jesus really kind of goes through the gospels and doesn't hide or disguise who he is or who he's connected with. Uh, he really lays it out. And that's why the religious leaders in Jesus' day and age were really, really bent on, on uh really getting him arrested, taking him down, if you will. Listen to some of these. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 27, it says, But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he says. Take courage, I am here. Take courage, I am here. He's, uh, there's, a, there's the storm that's raging. Jesus has sent the disciples on across the Sea of Galilee. And then later on, that evening, Jesus comes out uh, on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the, on the waves. Uh, he's walking on the water. And they get scared to death. And what does he tell them? He says, don't be afraid. Take courage, I am here. But what we're missing in the English translation is what the Greek actually says. Because in that one statement, what Jesus is calling out to the disciples in the boat is, um, 
take courage. The I am is here. Did you know that? The word that's used in Greek for I am is ego, a me. I am. And, and it's often used interchangeably with this same idea in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses is standing before the burning bush. And God tells Moses, as Moses calls out to him, who shall I say is sending me back to Egypt to set the Israelites free? And what does the voice from the burning bush say? What does God tell him? He says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. This is the word we transpose as Yahweh in the Old Testament, where you see the words God or Lord all capitalized, all the letters in that word capitalized is where it's referencing this divine name, Yahweh, or I am, or I am that I am. And Jesus is using these same references for himself in the New Testament. Take courage, he says. The I am is here. Mark, what about Mark chapter 14, verses 60 through 64? Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? So they've arrested Jesus. It's after the Last Supper. He's gone out into the garden to pray in Mark's gospel with his disciples. And now the temple guards come and arrest him. They take him to the Sanhedrin, who basically is the supreme court of the Jewish uh, peoples of the day and age, comprised of Jewish leaders. And, and he's on trial before them. And they say, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? Who what do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus, it says, was silent and he made no reply. And then the high priest, Caiaphas, asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. Ego me. I am that I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. So you see, the actual way to read this is Jesus said, the I am is here. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Yes, Jesus says, the I am is here. Yahweh is here. You know what they did right after that? It says they tore their clothes. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the high priests, they tore their clothes and they called out blasphemy. If he's saying, I'm here or I'm the Messiah, that's not a blasphemous statement. The fact that he said, I am, Yahweh is here, is the blasphemous statement. Or so it would seem, unless he truly was God in the flesh. What about John chapter 4, verse 25 through 26? Jesus is, is, is at, at a well, and a woman comes out noonday to draw water. It's the woman at the well. And he begins to ensue this conversation with her, and, and, and this is what happens. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus says these words, I am the Messiah. Ego, a me. In essence, he's saying, the I am is here. You're talking to him. I'm the one. I'm God in the flesh. John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. 
We read, that evening the disciples went down to the shore to wait for him, but as darkness fell, Jesus uh, hadn't come back. They got into the boat and headed across to the lake to Capernaum. Again, the Sea of Galilee story from John's perspective. Soon a gale swept through, uh, through uh, the, the area of, upon them, and the sea grew very rough, and they had rowed three or four miles, and then suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat, and they were terrified. But he called out to them, don't be afraid, I am here. And again, the translation for this is better put as don't be afraid, the I am is here. Yahweh is here is what he's proclaiming. John chapter 8, verses 23 through 24, Jesus continued, you are from below, but I am from above. He's talking to the religious leaders. You belong to this world, but I do not. That is why I said that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. You see, there's no mistaking in the translation here what Jesus says of himself. He says, for unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am he, I am Yahweh, you will die in your sins. I am the Messiah, but more than the Messiah, I and the Father are one. We are, in essence, the very same. In John chapter 8, and this is the last verse I give you for, for, for this point, and, and it's this. Jesus is still talking to the religious leaders. And if you know anything about the religious leaders of Judaism, they consider Abraham their father. Father Abraham had many sons. We sing the song in Christianity. Uh, but they do believe that Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and rightly so he is because it's with Abraham uh, that the nation of Israel starts in Genesis chapter 12. And so they claim their, their lineage all the way back to Abraham, and some even go further back to Adam and Eve, um, again, which is right, but, but they're claiming fatherhood to Abraham. And Jesus says, you know, <laughs> that's all good and well, but listen to what he says. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I'm reading from the New Living Testament for that passage of Scripture. Uh, the King James Version and several other versions say something varyingly different, but they all come across the very same way. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, that's not great language or, or, or language skills or grammar, is it? Uh, it's, it's, confusing. <laughs> it's confusing tenses, isn't it? If he was trying to say proper English or proper Greek or proper Aramaic of the day and age, he would have used the proper tense and said, before Abraham was, I was, or before Abraham was born, I was born, but that's not what he's saying. Because the pre-existent Christ who would take on the form of human flesh in a, in a man we know as Jesus, God become flesh. Isaiah calls him uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Before he took on human flesh, he was always existent. Before Abraham was even born, I am Yahweh. Jesus doesn't just merely allude to the fact that he and the Father are one. He boldly proclaims the unity of oneness that exists between them. I've heard secular scholars and atheists proclaim, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He actually, or never claimed to be God. He never really claimed any divinity, but they're missing the point. 
They're lost in translation, if you will. Jesus boldly proclaimed in very clear terminology and words in the language of his day that we oftentimes lose in translation that he is the I am, which is so powerful, which is what incensed the religious leaders of his day. What he is telling us in these verses is, I am one with the Father, and the Father is one with me. Philip, in John chapter 14, calls calls him out and says, Jesus, show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. And Jesus says, Philip, have I not been with you this long, and still you do not know me. Once you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he tells Philip. And so, again, I digress. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but the truth of the matter is Jesus boldly proclaimed his unity with the Father, and his unity with the Father is a model for the church to be unified together as he and the Father are unified in one. Number two, the second point this this morning is this. The truth of Jesus' words brings unifying joy to those who hear and understand them. Uh, John chapter 17, referencing again verses 13 and 14, he says to the Father in his, in his prayer, Now I'm coming to you, Father. I told them many things while I was with them in this world, that they would be filled with joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Jesus goes on to pray that the disciples, his students, his followers would be completely united as one, just as he and the Father are one. Jesus knows that the only hope for the disciples is unity under him. And the disciples are to be living a living, breathing organism of life together. They are to be light. They are to be a joy to the world. They are to be a heavenly aroma and fragrance. fragrance. They are to be salt. They are to be light. In Moody's Anecdotes, uh, there's a quote that reads like this. There are two ways of being united. One is by being frozen together, and the other is by being melted together. And what Christians need is to be united in brotherly love And then they may expect to have power. If we're frozen together, as I've often heard as the frozen chosen, we're not powerful. We are to be melted together in this symbiotic union, working seamlessly as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, Paul tells both the church in Rome and the church in Corinth that They are to be one as the body of Christ, knit together in perfect union. In in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he really gives us this perfect imagery of what the body of Christ is to look like. Like a physical body with hands and fingers and eyes and nose and ears and legs and toes. We are all uniquely created to fit together as one within the body of Christ. He talks about spiritual gifts within that context, how each is gifted with something unique to benefit the body of Christ with, and not one to lord over the other with their gift. He says some are given greater honor than others, and others who aren't given much honor or who aren't seen as often are still very important, and we have to protect those. So what is he saying? He's not saying as the body, you get this really outlandish idea that a disunified body, physical body, would be a body where where the neurological system is 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 messed up, you know. Maybe maybe it's somebody who who think about this in a physical way. If somebody 
is paralyzed. They break their neck or, uh, and they're paralyzed from the neck down. The head, in essence, is disconnected from the body. Why? Because it can't control the movements of the body. In 1 Corinthians 12, what, is, what does Paul tell us? That Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. And when the head of the body is not allowed to control the body of Christ through the truth and the word of God, what happens? The body dies. There's a lot of dying churches across the nation today, across the globe. Why? Because they've so disconnected themselves from unity with the Father through Jesus Christ, and they've so discounted the word of God and the truth of God that they've paralyzed themselves. They become frozen together rather than melted together. It seems as though the church in our Western culture has lost a sense of power that we actually see in some of the other places of the globe where persecution is at its greatest. The church is growing leaps and bounds and there's power abounding within that church because they have no other way but to be unified in doing what they're doing. They're all in. But the Western church, it seems like, isn't always all in. And we could take or leave the church. We can, we can clock in at the church when we want to, and we can clock out and go about the rest of our week. That's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's a path that leads to destruction to continue that mentality, but it's also dangerous because it disunifies us. It breaks us apart as the body of Christ. I believe that the Western culture has lost a sense of power, and I believe this is a direct correlation with the disjointed, disunified body of Christ within our culture. Instead of fighting the battles that we face together, we've so elevated the status of the individual in our nation and in our culture to the point that we have fractured into these multiple subsets within the church. Not only do we have various or different denominations in our culture, or in our cultures around the world, or various different doctrines. You know, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Wesleyan, I'm this, I'm that. Get over yourself, right? We should all get over ourselves at one point and say, are we believers in Christ? Are we followers of Christ? Do we believe in the truth of his word? Do we believe in the truth who is Jesus? Is that the unifying factor? Not only do we have various denominations and doctrines, that divide us. Now we have social issues, political issues, and emotional issues that divide us as well. It seems as though we can't agree on much these days within the universal church, within our culture. The problem lies in what we do with God's word. Jesus says in verse 14 that he has given us, his disciples, God's word, and that the world hates us because we do not belong to the world, just as he doesn't belong to the world. In essence, listen to what he's saying. He's saying that the word of God and our receiving it makes all the difference in the distinctions between the unity with Christ and division with the world. What do we do with the word that Christ has given us? It either unifies us or it divides us. Allowing the world's interpretation of God's word to creep into the church is very dangerous indeed. When we allow the world to tell us what the Bible says versus what God tells us his word truly says, interpreting that through the lens of the Holy Spirit's empowerment of us as believers in Christ, we are on dangerous ground. 
And that's what's happened in the church today. We've allowed the world to interpret God's word for us and tell us what it means instead of allowing God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak plainly into the church. The world desires nothing more. Hear me on this. The world desires nothing more than to destroy the very essence of the word of God because it runs completely contrary to worldly structures. Why do you think the church is so disunified today on political issues, social issues, all these other issues? It's because we can't unify on the one main factor, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and in him there is salvation, that he is the only way to God the Father, as he told us in John chapter 14, verse 6. If we can't unify around the most basic concepts of salvation in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives and of the world and that his death on the cross actually meant something and that his raising from the grave actually breaks the bonds of sin and death over us in this life, then we're lost as a church. See, we can see evidence of, 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 of this clearly in Western society and culture today in the way that we handle topics like abortion and gender and sexuality and the like. Allowing the world to interpret God's word is a very dangerous thing if we are to maintain unity and joy within the body of Christ. Lastly, and the last point this morning is this, true unity is rooted in the truth. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once proclaimed, now listen to what he's saying here. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once proclaimed that to remain divided is sinful. Did our Lord pray that they may be one even as we are one in John chapter 17 verse 22? A chorus of ecumenical voices, he says, keep harping the unity tune. Now he's saying this a century or two ago. Listen to this. This is crazy. A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. What they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite, he says. Such teaching is false and it's reckless and it's dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments, he says. Truth comes before unity because truth is the basis of our unity. Unity without truth, he says, is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17 must be read in its full context. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ, he says. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. gospel. So it's not unity at all costs, rather it's unity around the truth. That's the most important thing with unity in the body of Christ, which is what we should concern ourselves with uh, today in the church. Truly, think about this for a minute. It is dangerous to unify around the wrong things. I mean, consider Hitler and Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s of the 20th century. As an example of this, they unified around some horrible, misguided notions that wreaked havoc and destruction on nearly 10 to 16 million people, which had ripple effects on the rest of the world that lead up even to today. Truth is not relative, as some have come to believe. 
In the postmodern era that we live in right now, truth is a product of a bygone era that is outdated and outmoded. And that's a sad, sad testimony about that philosophical system. But that's what we live with today. You can't watch the news, watch any TV show, read the paper without seeing this, 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 oh, the overtones of postmodernism and, and this idea that, well, what is true for you is not true for me. So your truth is good, my truth is good, and we all get along. Well, then that's not how that works, because what happens when your truth infringes on my truth and there becomes this graining against each other, grading against each other? There is or should be or needs to be an absolute truth. In, in order for there to be an ordered society to live in, for truth to be truth, it cannot be relative. For truth to be truth, it has to be absolute. It's not whatever we want to make it to be. Jesus prays, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. I think it's interesting just a few chapters before, and I already mentioned this reference in John chapter 14, verse 6, that at the, at the last supper around the table that, that, that evening, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's saying he's going to prepare a place for them. And Thomas says, well, just show us the way, Father, where you're going. We don't know where you're going. And Jesus says, Thomas, I am. Ego eimi. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's making a very bold claim that there is no way to the Father except through Jesus. And if Jesus and the Father are one, there is no other way. You may have heard me say this before. If there were other ways to heaven, to God, God would have made it so. I mean, think about that. God is all-powerful. He's all-loving. And if he was all-powerful enough, then he should have been able to make any way possible except for the fact that truth says that Jesus is the only way. If it was possible for Hinduism to be the way, God would have made that the way. If it was truth for Buddhism or Taoism or Mohammedism or what we call Islam today to be the way, Jesus would have said a different message while he was here with us. He would have said, you know, whatever way you want to come to me is fine. But in chapter 14, verse 6, he clearly dismisses any of the notion that there are multiple ways to God the Father and to salvation. I, he, I am, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus, the very living word of God, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us, is the very truth of God incarnate. So what is truth? It's more than what is truth. It's who is truth. Think about this. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John proclaims in John chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus was the word made flesh. 
Jesus was the very incarnate word of God that created everything in the beginning of time. Genesis 1 and 2, how does God create everything? He speaks it into existence. How does he speak everything into existence? By his very words. And then John tells us in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then we read Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and, 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 and Paul tells us that Christ exists, and, and in him and through him all things find their existence. That Jesus was with God in the beginning, creating everything that was to be created. So God's word that spoke everything into existence, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the living embodiment of the very words of God and the very truth of God. That's why he can proclaim, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Thomas. No one can come to the Father except through me. In the fall of 1992, in the edition of the Daily Bread, a small little devotional, this story of division and unity appeared. Listen to this. During World War II, Hitler commanded that all religious groups unite so that he could control them. Among the brethren assemblies, half complied and half refused this edict from Hitler. Those who went along with the order had a much easier time those who did not faced harsh, harsh, harsh persecution. In almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, the feelings of bitterness ran deep between the groups, so deep, in fact, that there was so much tension that still divided them years later. Leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat and for several days each person spent time in prayer examining his own heart in the light of Christ's commands. Then they came together and Francis Schaeffer, who told of the incident, asked a friend who was there, what did you guys do when you came back together? We were just one, he said as they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to God's control, the Holy Spirit created this spirit of unity among them. This one thing that had separated them, this one grievous, heartbreaking betrayal between these two groups was mended through the power and the cleansing uh, spirit of God. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred for one another. When love prevails among believers in Christ, especially in times of strong disagreement, it presents the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. This is what the world is begging to see from the church. Not unity at all costs, but unity around the truth. They want to see us mend fences, to build bridges with each other, to re resolve tensions, to be ministers of reconciliation. I contend that apart from unity, there is no joy, not just in our personal lives, but within the church. Jesus, the great unifier, the great reconciler between us and God, brought us great joy by offering us a great sacrifice. In Christ, God has pulled out all the obstacles and all the rituals and freely offers us a path to salvation and wholeness. Apart from God, there is no unity, and apart from God, there is no real lasting joy. And as God's ambassadors here on earth, the church is called not only to be committed 
to making disciples, but of being that salt and that light to the rest of the world. Both of these things bring joy and unity, among other things. Think about this. Salt brings joy and flavor to the taste buds and its purifying qualities that bring out the best for which it's used. And light, what does light do? It illuminates the dark places and it liberates people to walk freely without hurting themselves. We should be liberating people as a unified body to walk in wholeness through salvation in Jesus Christ. It's time to be light. It's time to be salt once again, church. It's time to work toward being one as Jesus and the Father are one. It's time once again to share in the glory of God the Father with Jesus Christ by reflecting the light of Christ to the world around us and by drawing others to him. It's it's time to work together, not because it benefits us personally in some practical way, but because it glorifies God in every single way. Unity with God through Jesus and unity with the body of Christ, the church, is the catalyst for true joy. I pray that that's your prayer this morning. Again, you've been hearing a same, this same tone from me probably for the past several weeks online. And that is, we have so much time on our hands. Let's make use of the time we have by bridging the gap with the broken relationships we have by mending those things that are broken uh, between us and others. And, And why not allow God to mend us internally by letting the Spirit have His way in our lives, cleaning us from the inside out, those things that you've been holding back from God, holding back confessing to God. Why don't you confess those things today? Be set free because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And if you allow the Spirit into you by believing in Jesus Christ, He will come and take residence and He will help you clean every room of your heart that has become hardened with time, that has become a dark, dank, damp place for sin to reside. Why don't you let Him clean you from the inside out? Let me pray over you this morning and I'll let you be on your way. Father, the men and women, kids, everybody who's listening this morning to this message, I pray this would be a defining moment for them, that God, they would find freedom through the power of your Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. If they've been one foot in your kingdom and one foot in the world, God, we know that that's not even a possibility. I pray that you would help them to make a full resolve this morning to be completely committed to you as a follower of Christ. Father, this is the only true way to unity, Within the body of Christ, it's the only true way to unity with you. God, remind us that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus came to bring us life abundant. And that there's no way to the Father except through Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. We love you, praise you, and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we ask all of this. Amen. Until next week, God bless you. We'll see you soon.